Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chance to read it together, uh, that you have made yourself known to us. We thank you for just the joy of singing together, worshiping you, being here as a church family. So thank you for all that you're doing in our midst. And now we just admit our own, uh, our, our need and our dependence upon you. So God, would you come and teach us? Uh, open our eyes that we might understand your word and apply it to our lives. Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, hey, welcome once again to FBC. We're so glad that you're here. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 16, verse 25. That's where we're going to be starting kind of the end of chapter 16 here as we're continuing our sermon series, Walking Through the Gospel of John, little by little. Big thank you to Pastor Lee, of course, for preaching last week in chapter 16. And uh, just a great word and encouragement that he brought. And kind of hard to believe that uh, it was his last sermon here at FBC. Isn't that isn't that wild? Um, we're truly going to miss Lee, and we're looking forward to celebrating him and the Pilgreens in the weeks ahead. But again, last week was a, a great word from Pastor Lee. And so now, though, we continue on where we left off in chapter 16, verse 25. Um, we're in this section of the Gospel of John, uh, referred to often as the farewell discourse. It's, it's this kind of goodbye teaching or uh, time that Jesus is with his disciples right before arrested and goes to the cross. It's really his kind of last words to them in this formal setting. And it started back in chapter 13. And now we're at the end of chapter 16. And these verses we're looking at this morning are the end of the farewell discourse or uh, the farewell to the farewell discourse. This is where he kind of wraps it up. And we know from stories and experience that uh, your final moments with someone or with a group of people are, are really special. Uh, or, or, or momentous. There's something special about those final moments together, a, a final opportunity to talk and be together before things change radically. Makes me think of uh, our, our wedding for Amber and I almost 11 years ago, right? The big day was coming, but the day before the big day is what? The Rehearsal dinner, right? And so we had a rehearsal dinner that night with our closest friends and family uh, at a restaurant. And it was a really special time. It was a smaller group. It was kind of our, uh, before the big day, before the big event, uh, we were together and sharing stories and memories and laughing and sharing a meal together. And so it kind of has this feel. Before the big day, before Jesus goes to the cross, he has this uh, moment with his disciples, and if this were a movie, you'd sense the drama of it building. Uh, the lighting would probably change. There'd be some kind of dramatic instrumental music playing in the background. Candles were probably lit. He's talking with his disciples as he prepares to go to the cross. And again, what we see here at the end of chapter 16, these are his final recorded uh, words to his disciples all gathered together. Okay, they're about to, he's going to pray and then he'll, he'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane and there'll be a few incidents there before he's arrested. But really, this is the last kind of formal teaching with them all together. Hey guys, here's what I want you to know before these events unfold. You heard it read aloud, but let's look back at verse 25, how it starts. He says, though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming 
when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. Now notice two things here. First, he's, he's telling his disciples that some big changes are coming, right? He's preparing them for what is ahead. The time is coming, he says. And, and really, the whole farewell discourse, if you look back through it, uh, there's all this language that lines up with that. A time is coming. In a little while, you'll see me no longer. I'm going away. Now the Son of Man is glorified. The hour are come. Things like that, that kind of are, are cluing us into the fact that, that big things are about to happen. And he says in verse 25, he's going to tell us quite plainly about the Father and what we should expect. Now, I admit, in studying the passage this week, it was a little bit hard to connect all of the dots and really see what, what the heart of it was, because as you heard it read aloud, Jesus says a lot of things in these verses here. There's a lot of ideas in here, a lot of moving parts, and so it's kind of studying and looking to figure out, okay, how does this all connect? What's kind of the main theme driving all of these things Jesus says? And it really seems that the heart of it, the center of his thought here is really in verses 27 and 28. So look there, he says, no, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And then verse 28, I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. So here in these short verses, the heart of this passage, we really see a summary of, of the whole Christian message, right? If we had to boil down the Christian message, the essential gospel, what Jesus has done, who he is, we see so much of it right here. Jesus telling us he came from the Father, verse 28 says. He came and entered the world for a specific purpose. And then he's, he's leaving the world, going back to his Father, of course we know by way of the cross, and so he's kind of summarizing here the gospel message, the, the finished and complete work of Christ. If we only had these few verses, I would argue we have a lot to know about who Jesus is and what he came to do. I mean, think about it. What are all these elements that we see? Verse 28, I came from the Father. Throughout the gospels, Jesus has, telling, has been telling us who he is, that he's one with his Father. He said things like, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. John 1 tells us that he was in the beginning with God the Father. He was God himself. And that may seem like a given, like, come on, pastor, we know, you know, Jesus is God. We get it. And yet, we can't take that for granted. It may seem like a given, but for many in church history who have gone before us, they've had to contend for this fact at the heart of so many really early heresies in the first few centuries of the church and even stretching into today was the idea that Jesus was not fully God. He didn't truly come down from the Father and was perfectly one with the Father. No, he was a, a created being. This is at the heart of the fourth century heresy, Arianism, many strands of Gnosticism that would deny that Jesus was truly God and one with the Father. Instead, they'll say, and we hear, hear things like this floating around today, right? Jesus wasn't God himself. He didn't come from the Father. and equal, He wasn't equal in glory and essence with the Father. Rather, he was a created being. He was a human with a, with a special connection to God, sure. 
but he was not God himself. And actually, he was one who could show us the way to work ourselves up to God. And so it's really an inversion of the gospel. Rather than God coming down to rescue and save us, it was this man, Jesus, showing us the way to work our way up to God. If you read the early church fathers and church history, you'll see that they had to deal with that and combat that claim. And again, many still today wrestle with this. Jesus was a good human teacher, they'll say. And so we and every generation after us have to come back to these essential truths of Scripture. Jesus saying, I came from the Father. He was in the beginning, one with his Father. Jesus is God himself. Verse 28 continues. He came from the Father and what? It says, entered the world. So now we're not only talking about the person of Christ, but now the work of Christ, and part of that is the incarnation, right? The doctrine of the incarnation that we sing about and celebrate every year at Christmas. God in the flesh, God coming down, walking among us. Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, announced to the shepherds in the fields nearby, worshipped by the wise men, the magi from the east. The eternal creator God taking on flesh and humanity to save us. There's a number of things we could say about the doctrine of the incarnation, but this morning will suffice it to say just the simple point that the doctrine of the incarnation shows us that we could not save ourselves. Our hope is not in this world, that humanity, we're going to figure it out. We needed a rescuer, one to come from outside of the world, to enter the world and save the world. We not only see that Jesus came from the Father, we see who he is, we now See that he enters the world, the doctrine of the incarnation. But now verse 28 also says that he's leaving the world, going back to the Father. We know that this is by way of the cross, his death and resurrection and ascension. So he entered the world for a distinct purpose, to come and die for the sins of the world. To pay our debt on the cross, that we might be reconciled to God who loves us. And then he rose again, giving us new life in his name, and he ascended back to the Father. And it's as we look to the cross and how Jesus leaves the world that it really shows us the very heart and character of God. Hear this from D.A. Carson. He says, It is in this most dramatic of divine self-disclosures, in this shame and triumph of death, in this eschatological victory of death and resurrection, that the ultimate significance of Jesus is to be found, and therefore also the clearest display of the character and purposes of God. You want to know what God is like and what God came to do. He's saying you look to the cross, and that's where we see it most clearly. And so do you see here, in in these few verses, we see the summary of, of the work of Christ, who he is coming from the Father, God the Son entering the world for a purpose and now leaving the world going back to the Father by way of the cross and resurrection and ascension. This is the heart of our message and our hope in the gospel. And again, it may seem redundant. Like, Pastor, we know the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus is God himself. We know the doctrine of the incarnation. We, we know these terms. And yet I'm convinced that we really need to over and over again remember these truths Because often our our biblical awareness, our biblical literacy nowadays can be quite low. And so we need to go back to these simple, what might feel like basic to some of us, these these core truths about what we believe and what the Bible teaches. 
So Jesus reminds us of his finished work, what he came to do. But he doesn't just tell us these in abstract. He's then going to teach on some of the implications of these truths and apply them to our lives. And so look how he continues in verse 26. He says, in that day you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So last week, Pastor Lee preached on this a little bit about uh, praying in the name of Jesus. He's teaching us to pray, telling us about the, uh, the privilege of being disciples of Jesus and what that means for how we can pray. But Jesus is going to clarify what praying in his name means at the end of verse 26 and the start of verse 27. You see him mention it there. He says, I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, he says, the Father himself loves you. Okay, so think about this for a second. So you can pray in my name, talks about all that that means. And then he says, but I'm not saying that that I'm going to ask the Father on your behalf in the sense of, hey, you're going to stay over here and the Father is going to stay over here. And you, you know, you give me the requests and I'm going to, you know, walk the requests across the room over here to the Father. I'm going to bring them to the Father on your behalf as if you guys are distanced and, and separate. You stay in the waiting room, you know, and I'm going to go walk into the throne room and I'll see what I can do, you know, see if I can convince the Father to, to hear your prayers and so on. Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm saying when I'm talking about praying in my name. Rather, he says, no, the Father himself loves you. In other words, in my name, you have access, direct access to the Father himself. He wants to hear directly from you. The Father himself, verse 27 says, he loves you. And so, first implication, the first kind of big point of the sermon, the finished work of Christ gives us access to the Father. Look again at verse 27. He says, no, I'm not kind of this go-between bringing your messages. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. The Father himself loves you. So, disciple of Jesus, the Father is not unsure about you. The Father is not needing to be convinced or provoked by Jesus the Son to to move and to, to hear your needs. The Father is not far off. He's not uncaring or unconcerned. He's not too busy running the universe to lend his ear to you. No, he says the Father himself loves you. It's because you have loved me and believed. And so you see the connection. Because we have believed in the work of Christ, that he came, what he came to do, his death and resurrection, it's through our faith that we believe that we are adopted into the family of God. And it's not that we earn it. We work for the love of God because the scriptures make clear we love because he first loved us. He is the initiator. He is the one who moves towards us. But we receive this love and this grace of God through faith when we believe in the Son. It's through faith in Jesus. John chapter 1 tells us that we can become children of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it's through Christ that we can be reconciled to God the Father. Ephesians chapter 2 says it's through him we have access to the Father by the Spirit. 
So Jesus makes it clear that we have this, this access, this real, personal relationship with God made possible for us because of Christ. And isn't, isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? He says, when you pray, say what? Our Father. You can call God your Father if you are in Christ. Christ. If you want to hear more about that, again, come out at 6.30 tonight to Pray Station where they're going to tell us all about the Lord's Prayer. And especially that part, our Father in heaven. And so just, can we just stop for a moment and think about how, how truly mind-boggling and, and baffling that simple truth is that we have access to the Father through the Son. I mean, in the world, when someone is great, and important, access to them is typically guarded. Right? If, if you wanted to set up a lunch meeting uh, with uh, you know, the mayor or the governor or you know, someone, a big deal, the president, a movie star, uh, how would you do it? Or you can't just like Google their cell phone number and get their cell phone number and text them like, hey, lunch at Chipotle, 12 o'clock, om nom, question mark. You, you can't just do that. You, there's some channels you have to go through to access that big, important person, right? In general, the more important someone is, the harder it is to reach them. The more limited access to them is, right? If you want to have lunch at Chipotle with someone very important, you probably have to right, fill out some request on some website somewhere and, and submit it. And there's some, you know, over-caffeinated intern that's going to read it and process those requests. They're, and then they're going to, if it's important enough and you're important enough and there's a significant enough reason, they'll pass that on to some other, you know, junior associate who maybe will filter those and eventually it'll reach an executive or a, a personal assistant of this big and very important person. And if they, if you're lucky and they deem it necessary, they'll be like, okay, yeah, set up the meeting and we'll sit down together, right? The more important someone is, the more restricted access to them is, the harder it is to reach them. And the same was true in the ancient world, right? You can just walk into a city and, I'd like to speak to the king. Say, well, who are you? <laughs> right? You'd have to talk to a, a guard at the gate who, again, if, would pass along your request to someone above them, who would then take your request and pass it on to someone above them. And maybe, again, eventually you would reach the ear of the king and you'd have a meeting set up or you'd be you know, invited into their presence. And so how, how amazing is it what Jesus is telling us about his father? Because the father himself loves you. And he invites you to bring your prayers in the name of Jesus right into his throne room. You have access to God, the, the one true God, the eternal creator, sovereign ruler and sustainer of everything that exists. That God invites you in the name of Jesus to come into his throne room and bring your heart to him. The Father himself loves you. If we chew on this truth long enough, it truly will amaze us. We have to hold two things together here. The technical terms, kind of theological terms, would be the, the imminence and the transcendence of God. God is both imminent and transcendent. Meaning he, he's transcendent and that he's, he's big. He, he's other. He's mysterious. You can't put him in a box. He's, he's sovereign. He's all-powerful. And yet, that same God is, is imminent. He's near. 
He's knowable. He invites us. He's accessible. He's close. God is both imminent and transcendent. And if we lose one of those, we get into trouble because then we'll start to say things like, well, God is imminent. He's near. He's close. But he's not really that transcendent. And so we're going to lose a sense of awe and worship and wonder of the majesty and glory of God and, you know, kind of God's my buddy sort of thing and we're real chummy and, but not, not a sense of submission and obedience to that great God. Or we'll err on the, the other side of things and that's what Jesus is warning us of here, the opposite error of thinking, well, God's transcendent and he's big and he's great and he's running the universe and so he doesn't have time for me. Jesus says, no, he's, he's imminent, he's close, he's near, the Father himself loves you and wants to hear from you. He's accessible in Christ and invites you to pray to him. And so the application is is simply for us to consider, is that how we approach our God and Father in prayer? When you have your quiet time in the morning and you open up your Bible and you bring your heart before the Lord and you sit with him, are you aware of the, the glory of that moment? That because of Jesus and what he has done, you've been adopted into the family of God and you can come before your father with all your needs and requests and heartbreak and wounds and joys and share with him. So the finished work of Christ gives us access to the father. And what happens next in the text is really, it's really interesting. Take a look. Verse 29, then then the disciples said, okay, so they hear all this, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Now, that sounds good on the surface, right? The disciples just said a lot of good things. Like, are we we cheering on the disciples in this moment? Like, good job, guys. Kind of. Maybe. I don't know. Seems good. But maybe in the context, maybe other things are going on here. Uh, You know, we're tracking with you, Jesus. You're speaking clearly. We, we believe, like we, we, we are with you, Team Jesus. Here we go. And yet, Jesus knows their hearts. And so he's going to respond and show us that maybe there's more going on here than just like, hey, good job, disciples. You know, the dots are connecting. Look what he says in verse 31. Do you now believe? Right, end of verse 30. This makes us believe. Verse 31. Do you now believe? Are, are you sure about that? In other words, Verse 32, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. So okay, trace the thought. The disciples, verse 29 and 30, we're tracking with you. Jesus, we believe, like we're, we're hearing you. You are speaking clearly. Here we go. And Jesus, in verse 31, yeah, do, you, do you really though? Are, are you sure you really believe? Because, he goes on to say, um, guys, just, you know, heads up, in just a little bit here, you're all going to be scattered. And you're, you're going to abandon me. And Peter, you're going to deny that you even knew me. Just as the Old Testament prophecies said would happen. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. In just a few hours, this is all going to happen. They're going to go home. They're going to be afraid. They're going to abandon Jesus. And so they have this like great confident declaration of faith. We're with you. We're sticking by you, essentially. We believe. And Jesus is like, mm, kind of. <laughs> Actually, guys, there's a little bit more to it. And so he, he directly shoots down their overconfidence. See, not so fast, guys. 
I'm glad you're confident, glad you're saying some good things on the surface and you say you believe, but some of the dots are yet to be connected for you. I need you to stay humble, realize the capacity for failure that is still in your hearts because you're all about to be scattered and abandoned. Here, the author C.H. Dodd respond to this. He says, the damping down of an enthusiastic confession of faith might seem surprising. Right? Are these words kind of surprising to us? Like, Jesus, give the disciples a break. They're saying a lot of good things. Like, just cheer them on. He says, it might seem surprising. If we did not remember that it corresponds to a constant pattern, not only in the fourth gospel, but elsewhere, is part of the character and genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men. It owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them. And this they could never forget. So what Dodd is saying, and what is really being highlighted here in the text, is that the, the message of the church is not, man, those disciples were great. Look at their faith. Look at their courage. You know, let's just, let's just follow their example. It's not look at how great the disciples were. It's look at how great Jesus is. See, look, look at what our great God does with these lowly, confused, overconfident, foolish disciples like you and me. And so for us today, if, if we lack faith, or lack courage, or we often feel a step behind, or it's hard for some of us to connect the dots, as it were. Be encouraged. It was the same for the disciples. And Jesus wants to remind them that it's not about their strength, their faith, their virtue, their courage. It's about him and what he can do through these flawed now you might be hearing that and say well goodness what's I guess the alternative then if, if they have this great declaration of faith and they seem really confident and Jesus is like slow down guys not so fast what's the alternative is it just despair you know just leave heads hanging low <laughs> discouraged well no Jesus tells us verse 33 I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So you notice Jesus tells us where to look in times of trouble, right? Difficult things are ahead. Trouble will find you. But I want you to have peace with me. But take heart, take courage, uh, cheer up, essentially, he's telling them. But the challenge is he wants them to know where to look when those troubles come. Where to place their hope, where to place their confidence. And it's again, just like we talked about earlier, it's in the finished work of Christ. So the finished work of Christ not only gives us access to the Father, but it gives us confidence in trouble. Notice the flow. We get it. Jesus, no you don't. You're all going to abandon me. You'll have trouble going forward. You'll be pushed and ridiculed and, and doubted and slandered and, and beat down 
because of your commitment to me. Because you're one of my followers, you're going to feel like an exile. You're not going to quite feel at home with your neighbors or the people around you because your beliefs and your values aren't, aren't going to line up with the world around you. And also you're going to face trouble in the world just in general as, as human beings <laughs> because our world is sinful and broken. And we, again, we just read the headlines every day and, and could easily be thrown into a tailspin, seeing again, war, violence, food shortages, poverty, abuse. I mean, you name it, right? It's hard, it's hard to go a day without reading a headline that just, just wrenches your heart. You'll have trouble. But take heart, he says. Cheer up. Have courage. And here's your reason for that courage and your confidence. I've overcome the world. It's a cry, it's a cry of victory that, that Jesus wins. He came to conquer, not as a militant king killing his enemies, but as a sacrificial servant dying for his enemies. Paying for the sins of the world, coming to save his people and then rising over death in the grave to give us new life in his name, eternal life and hope in the kingdom of God. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel. And notice, I just, we really got a clue in here culturally to realize what he's not saying. You see what he's not saying? He doesn't say, this is big, he doesn't say, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, you. See that? He doesn't say, you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, you. Take heart because you are, you are strong and your faith is genuine and you're going to figure it out. You'll be okay. That's not what he says. He doesn't, he doesn't say, take heart, you. You are smart and resourceful and you got friends around you. You'll be okay. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, take heart, you. You are creative and unique. A beautiful flower that needs to blossom into the world and spread your goodness. Like Oprah says. That's not, that's not what he says. He doesn't say, take heart, you. And it, isn't that the message of our, of our day, of our, of our world, of our culture? Take, you're going to be okay. Things are going to be hard, but look at you. You can do it. Look within. You have what it takes. Believe in yourself. You got this. Oh, the places you'll go. Right? Or as Katy Perry sings, you're going to hear me roar, right? Just like look, look within and just bring it out and ah, you're going to be great. That's what it is here. And, and so often what happens is we, within the church, we take these messages, kind of positive thinking, kind of vague, you know, new agey sort of spiritual encouragements and we throw maybe a Christian label on them and baptize them as a Christian message or a Christian book. You guys, really, there's so much junk floating around right now. Labeled Christian with a thin veneer of maybe Christian ideas. Um, that's exactly this message. You're going to have trouble, but you, you're great. Look within. You have what you need. God's here to, you know, just cheer you on, make you feel good. He's not going to give you more than you can handle. There's a Goliath out there, and you're David, and go tackle that Goliath, and you're going to be okay. Here's the authors like Glennon Doyle, Rachel Hollis, if you're aware of them, thin Christian label smacked on it, but really anti-inverted gospel message. The theme is that let's not talk about sin. Let's talk about trusting you. 
look to yourself. And it, it, it's like junk food or candy, where it might sound or taste good at first, but if that's your diet, it's going to make you sick. And so we have to be really discerning, really thoughtful about the messages we consume in the world. And to be fair, I, I agree that, hey, we're all made in the image of God. And if we're in Christ, the world has filled us with his spirit and given us gifts and a unique calling and ways that we are to contribute in the world, absolutely be encouraged that God wants to use you in a unique way in the world. That is absolutely biblical. But what happens, again, in this inversion I'm talking about is the, the priority or the order of things gets flip-flopped. And we start there with you and then sprinkle in some God stuff. Whereas Jesus is saying, no, take heart. I, really, when things get hard, don't look at yourself. Look at me. Take, take heart. I have overcome the world. It's a, it's a declaration of victory, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's where we look, Christian, when we're discouraged. That, we look to Jesus when we're in trouble. And his victory, and his cross, and his resurrection. He says, it's my work that can give you confidence in trial, that can sustain you, that can give you Hope, because it's this objective historical reality. The cross and resurrection of Jesus. And through faith in him, our identity is secure. Our eternal hope is secure. We're adopted as children of God. We don't have to worry about performing to get into the kingdom. We're working hard to earn the love of God. He says, it is yours in Christ. Your sins are paid for. Your guilt and shame are Gone in Christ. Your old self is dead and buried. Your identity as a slave to sin, you're redeemed. Your adoption into the family of God is secure. Your new self is made alive in Christ. He says, I have overcome the world. That's where I want you to look when trouble comes. I shared this before, but Pastor Matt Chandler has this great illustration that I'm just going to steal and, you know, give him credit. You know, thanks, Matt. Um, about, he's a big sports fan, okay, like me. And he, he talks about, I've shared this before, but he talks about how he'll often record the games. If he can't watch a game live, uh, whatever team he wants to follow, he'll record it and watch it later, right? Anybody do that, right? Record the game, watch it later, and hope, you know, no bozo texts you the score and then like ruins it for you, right? You're like, don't tell, I don't want to hear anything. I got it recorded. I'm gonna watch later. Don't tell me the score. And then someone texts you like, uh, he's, you know. Um, so he says that sometimes that'll happen. He's ready to watch the game. He's got it recorded and he finds out though ahead of time the score and he knows who wins. And if he finds out that his team wins, again, sometimes you could just abandon it. Like why bother watching? I already know what happens. I'll just go on with my life. But sometimes he says, I'll still watch it. I know my team wins, but I watch the game and enjoy it. Anyways, but he says, my experience watching the game is totally different when I know that my team already won. Right? Because when you're watching the game, if your team's down or getting blown out or it's not looking good, you get a little stressed or a little worried or like, all right, this isn't going to work out. This doesn't feel good. I'm not happy about this. But think about it. If you already know the result, you know your team wins the game, then even when they're down, even in the valley, when things don't look good, you're like, I don't know how they're going to pull this one out. This is, and it might normally cause you stress. You know the result, and so you can just watch it with joy. You're like, I don't know how they're going to do it, but it's going to work out. <laughs> right? I don't know how they're going to get the W, but they do. 
so I can just watch this and enjoy it and enjoy the ride. Right? It totally changes our perspective when we realize the result is already won. And he compares that to the Christian life. And so for us, even in, in trial, in trouble, in difficulty, we can look to the cross of Christ, the finished work of Christ, and realize it, it's finished. Jesus wins. We're secure in him. We truly have nothing to fear. That can be the source of our confidence and our hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we love you and we come before you just with grateful hearts for your word. Thank you for this teaching to your disciples that uh, you, you tell us, Jesus, that the Father himself loves you. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. And that in Jesus' name, we can come right into your throne room, bringing our hearts and requests and needs, and that you love us and you hear us and you invite us to come to you. And thank you, Jesus, for this word of confidence that in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You are our hero, Jesus. You are our king. You are our savior. You are the one we look to. Would you give us confidence now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.